You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn first of all to the letter of Paul at Rome, Romans eleven twenty-five to 36. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Then we turn to Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in the last two questions and answers of Lord's Day 52. How do you conclude your prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is all this we ask of thee because as our king having power over all things thou art both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because not we, but thy holy name, should so receive all glory forever. What does the word amen or amen mean? Amen means it is true and certain. 
For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of him. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, today we have come to the end. And indeed, as you can see, it is a double end. We've come to the end of the Lord's Prayer, and we've come to the end of the Heidelberg Catechism. Two endings, therefore. One has to do with the last part of the most priceless prayer in all the world. (coughs) The other has to do with the last part of the most precious catechism, or one of the most precious catechisms in all the world. So we've come to the end. But then we ask ourselves, exactly how does it all end? And at first sight, we have to say it ends on a bit of a down and dubious note. Look, for example, at Matthew 6, at the text of the Lord's Prayer that you find there, and what do you see? Look as well at Luke 11, another version of the Lord's Prayer, and what do you see there? In both cases, you discover that these final words of the Lord's Prayer, as explained in the Catechism, are missing. They're not to be found in the main text at all. There is no, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Of course, if you look a little harder, you will eventually find them. At least in the case of Matthew 6, you will find them buried in a footnote in very small italicized print at the bottom of the page. And you'll find these final words introduced there as well with the statement, some late Manuscripts, dot, dot, dot. Now what does all that mean? Does these mean that these words are not original and that they didn't actually come from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ at all? Does this mean that these words are fake and that we should drop them? Does it mean that when we recite the Lord's Prayer, we should stop sooner? And does it mean, with respect to the Heidelberg Catechism, that we shouldn't end at 129, but actually we should end at 127? Well, beloved, before we revise our version of the Lord's Prayer, and before we take the scissors to the Heidelberg Catechism, we should stop and ask ourselves some questions. First, do you really think that our Lord would stop his teaching on his model prayer so abruptly? Do you think that he would end it on the words, but deliver us, period, finished, end, over? Or on the words, but deliver us from the evil one, period? Talk about a down note. What a depressing way to end or climax or conclude the greatest prayer in all the world. 
Well, beloved, regardless of what you may think, I happen to be of those believers who side with those so-called later manuscripts that record our Lord Jesus as concluding his prayer with the entirely fitting words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Or along with theologian James I. Packer, I would say that while these words, these closing words may not be in the best manuscript, they are in the best tradition of the Christian church. Indeed, they are in the best tradition because of what they say and because of what they teach us about how also our prayers should come to a close. To look at that in some more detail, I preached to you on the following theme, the doxology. Lessons on how to end one's prayer. And we shall see that we are reminded in this Lord's Day how to do it on a high note, a rich note, and a sure note. Well, beloved, if we are wondering about the originality of these final words of the Lord's Prayer, one of the things that we should do is note their doxological character. Doxological, what is that, you ask? Well, admittedly, it's not a popular word. It's not even a modern word. It is, however, a biblical word. For what does the word doxological or the word doxology refer to? It describes a word or an expression of praise to God. These words come from the Greek word doxa, which means glory and praise. Yes, and such words, beloved, are found throughout the entire Bible. Words of praise, doxological words, if you will, are to be found almost everywhere. Turn, for example, to the Old Testament and look at Psalm 8. Both as it opens as well as it closes, you find these doxological words of praise. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, as the psalmist reflects on how the Lord has created man, himself included, he cannot help but praise the Lord. And the same thing comes out in Psalm 19. There the psalmist is busy contemplating and considering the wonders of God's creation. And how does he end his reflection? With words of praise and doxology again. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, beloved, those are only two Old Testament examples of doxology. But if you read on and if you purposely look for them, you'll find many, many more. And sometimes you'll find them in the most unlikely of places. Take the prophecies of Jeremiah. We all know that Jeremiah makes for gloomy reading. But then suddenly amidst all of the gloom, you'll find these instances where praise breaks out. Breaks out in words of honor to God. 
Sing to the Lord, he says in chapter 20. Give thanks to God. And beloved, what about in the, in the New Testament? There do you find the same thing. Consider only the Apostle Paul. The end of Romans 11, which we've read together, comes to mind. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Or Philippians 4, verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. What about Colossians 3, 17? And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Or what about 1 Timothy 6, 15? God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable life. Now, beloved, in light of all of these, it really is not out of place to say that our Lord Jesus Christ ends his prayer with words of praise. As his teaching comes to a close, he wants to leave us with a real sense of the awesomeness and the magnificence of our God. To this God belongs the greatest name in all the universe. To this God belongs the kingdom and the glory and the loyalty and the obedience and the allegiance of all mankind. To this God belongs that will that is perfect and wise and just and wonderful in all things. In short, this God is everything. He's worthy. Of all the praise because of who he is and what he possesses. Yes, and to him praise belongs as well because of what he does for us every day. He supplies us with all the physical needs and necessities of daily living. He forgives and he wipes away our foulest sins, our dirtiest misdeeds, and makes us clean and whole and right again. And he also fills us with the power and the ability to withstand the deadliest of enemies. In short, our God gives us so much of himself and so many of his gifts that the words of praise and doxology that we find at the end of this prayer are entirely fitting and utterly deserving. And so it is that the Lord Jesus directs us to our Father in heaven. And along with this, he wants to lift up, you can be sure, our lives as well. For beloved, as we're busy with all of this, we also need to ask ourselves, what kind of lives do we so often live here upon this earth? So often we live sad lives because of the setbacks and the sorrows that we experience. So often we live burdened lives because we can't seem to get above all the duties and the tasks and the responsibilities of everyday life. 
So often we live worldly and horizontal lives, lives that are consumed with the things, pleasures, pastimes, and toys of this life. Because we assume that they will fill us and satisfy us. And so often too we live sour and complaint-filled lives. Because we don't get what we want. And what we think we need and should have. You see, beloved people, also believers, they have all sorts of lives. And it begs the question, what kind of a life do you live, beloved? What characterizes your life? What is it that sets your life apart? The Lord Jesus is saying in these final words of his prayer that praise is what should really and truly set you and I as children of God apart. Your life should be a doxological life. It should be the kind of life that sets you apart from the pessimists and the materialists and the complainers. Aim to make your life a praise-filled life. But then, beloved, realize as well that a doxological or praise-filled life is more than just a life filled with hallelujahs. There is such a thing as empty praise. You find that in the minor prophets, Micah, Amos, and so forth. You find it also today, people who call themselves believers, who gather together on Sunday for worship, who plaster a smile on their face, punctuate the air with well-timed Christian slogans, but whose lives are devoid of real substance and true obedience. It's striking that these last number of weeks I've heard a number of so-called Christian leaders remark that So much of Christianity or today's Christianity is 10,000 miles wide, but only an inch deep. Now, whether or not that's an accurate assessment, I don't know. But what I do know is that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want you and I or our praise to be shallow or superficial. And how do I know that? Well, because of what he teaches. He teaches us to conclude our prayers with words like, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And that, folks, is forever. So what kind of words are the kingdom, the power, and the glory? Of course, they're praise words. But you can also say they're they're key words. 
They're words that introduce us to mighty realities and glorious truths. They're window words. Words that open up new vistas, a new insight. Take, for example, the kingdom and the power. More than one scholar insists that these two words stress really one single complete or composite thought. So instead of two different concepts or thought being presented here by the Lord Jesus, he's actually presenting us with only one. That in actual fact, here the Lord Jesus is reminding us of God's absolute and omnipotent control. That the power and the kingdom belong together. That God has all the power. That to God belongs the kingdom. And you may notice that time and time again, the psalmists tend to combine these two things as well. Take, for example, Psalm 103. His kingdom rules over all. God's kingdom has all the power. In other words. And really, you know what that is saying, is that those who know and praise the Lord know something about his power and his kingdom, about his creation and his providence, his rule and his reign, his kingship and his kingdom, about his government and his authority. They rejoice in his goodness. And they drink deeply from the well of his unsurpassed greatness. Truly you can say, That with these words, the Lord Jesus wants to direct our eyes and our hearts to a higher and deeper level. But you know, he also wants something else. He he wants us to know and to confess this power, but he also wants us to pray for this indescribable power to be present and at work In our daily lives. The story is told about a missionary who traveled everywhere with a very old car. There was, however, a problem with the car. It wouldn't start again once he'd shut it off. So whenever, wherever the missionary went, he would either call on some school children to help him push the car or get it started, or he'd look for a hill and park the car facing down the hill, put on the brake, and when he wanted to leave, he'd let the brake go, let the car pick up a certain momentum, and then try to start it, and off he'd go again. And that's what he did with his car for many, many years. But then after he retired, another missionary came and he inherited the same old car. Only he didn't look for school children and nor did he look for hills. He looked under the hood. And after some time of looking, he found a loose wire which he connected 
And wouldn't you know it, the car started and there was not a problem again. Interesting story, you might say, but so what? Well, it reminds us surely that so often when we need power in our lives, we look in all the wrong places or we forget about the most obvious of places. And as a result, the Lord Jesus is here reminding us as well that when we need power in our lives, power to live faithfully, power to be good fathers, power to be good daughters, power to witness, power to be honest, power to be a light in this world, it all lies close at hand. It's there for the asking, for the praying, Turn to God and ask Him. Go to the source of all power and ask Him to turn on your life. And you will find it strengthened beyond measure. But then, beloved, if our Savior reminds us here that the power comes from God... He also reminds us about the glory, doesn't he? For yours is the glory. How often are we not reminded of that as well? Our God is a God of glory. But what, what really is, is glory? I think it's, it's a common enough word, but Exactly, precisely, what is glory? You may know glory comes from a root word which means heaviness, weighty, or impressive. And you've all experienced it. For example, if you go to the west coast of Vancouver Island, you walk along to Fino and you see a glorious sunset set and you say, oh, how glorious. You go to West Van and you tour one of those houses, those multi-million dollar houses that ends up in the sea and you say, what a glorious place to live. For us human beings, glory is so often associated with sights and with sounds even with wealth and possessions. But you know, in the scriptures, glory is more often than not associated with God. And then with the reality of his presence, power, and person. Think of God creating the world, just by speaking for six days. Think of God creating a path through the Red Sea. Think of the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness. Think of God coming to the temple and overshadowing it. That's glory. In the Old Testament, there's also an interesting episode 
in the book of Exodus where Moses says to God, Now show me your glory. It's almost a challenge. You might think that God will say to Moses, get lost, mind your own business. Who do you think you are? But God doesn't react that way. When Moses asks, Lord, show me your glory, God first of all shows him his visible, visual glory by passing in front of him. You can read it in Exodus 34. And then he shows him his verbal glory. When he speaks to him about his character, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, but not leaving the guilty unpunished. You see, the glory of God is in his character, in his person. And by the way, the same applies to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he comes, the Apostle John writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John's reflecting on what he's experienced with Christ. He says, all I saw when I looked at Christ, when I walked with him and talked with him, was glory, the glory of his truth and the glory of his grace. The glory of Jesus is in his person and in his work. And so we may say, beloved, that when Jesus is teaching us here about the glory In the closing words of the Lord's Prayer, he's referring, first of all, to the Father's glory. He's praying for his Father's glory to be recognized. He's praying for this glory to increase. He's praying for this glory to go on and on and to find its fullest expression on the new heaven and the new earth. But at the same time, he's also praying once again for something else. He's praying that God's glory will shine, especially in the lives of God's children through the great work of his son. There was a time when we were glorious. Psalm 8 says that when God first made us, we were a sight to behold. We were beautiful in appearance and in character. 
None of us needed a facelift. None of us needed a body tuck. None of us needed a personality transformation. We were perfect. But we lost it. We ruined it. We threw it overboard. But not forever. What's the great mission of Jesus Christ? What's his overriding task? You could say it's to bring many sons and daughters to glory. When he comes back, Jesus brings back the glory. And when we look to him and believe in him and confess his name, then the glory comes back. Paul writes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Hear what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that that God lights up our lives through Jesus Christ and the result, the glory, is back. The glory is back in our lives. And of course we could say much about this. But beloved, do you see how rich these closing words of the Lord's Prayer are? They're loaded with content and beauty. They teach great truths and rich lessons. And they could only come from Jesus our Lord who wants you to turn to him every day and experience his glory, the glory that today is partial, but the glory that tomorrow will be perfect. But remember the God of glory through the Lord of glory is preparing many sons and daughters for glory. So what we have here in these last words are words that end on a high note and a rich note. But also something else I might add finally, and that is on a sure note. Look at what comes at the close. It's the word ah. Men. And you know what amen means, right? It means true, sure, certain, solid. It signifies that all of the petitions that we have been taught by Christ are not exercises in wishful thinking and neither are they mere empty speculations. Now what Jesus teaches us is true and sure and certain. You can count on this. You can rest on this. You can build on this. You can sing about this. Surely 
it will come to pass. Beloved, there are times in our lives when we all doubt, when we all waver. And I dare say that so much of the doubting that we do is because we look far, far too much at ourselves or at our circumstances and not enough to God. All too many think that the certainty of their faith rests in themselves. Their will, their feelings, their experiences. They're always looking inside. But you know, that's not what the Word of God teaches us to do. It tells us to look outside of ourselves. It tells us to look up to God and to his throne. It tells us to look up to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It tells us to look at all the wonderful promises of God. And then it tells us to shout, Amen. All of this is true. All of this is certain. All of this is mine. My God, our God, has made it so. And so, beloved, you can see that neither this prayer No, the catechism ends on a lame note. They both end looking to God and rejoicing in Him. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that we may know, believe, and confess that yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We thank you, Father, that through your Son, Jesus Christ, you remind us of this even today. We thank you that you are a God of power, kingdom, and glory. And we thank you that you also enable us to be children of power, kingdom, and glory. We thank you, Father, for the certainty of your promises. We may live in a world of doubt, but we belong to a church resting on certainty. The certainty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the life, and the truth. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.